And now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter 24 as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we praise you for your word. For the words of our Savior that have been preserved here, we pray that by the same Spirit who filled your servant, your son, Jesus, uh, may by that same Spirit lead us into truth today. Deliver us from every distraction. Deliver us from every error. Give me articulate speech that we might receive these things out of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. When you were a child and you went to the pool or to the lake or to the beach, did your parents tell you that if you ate, you couldn't get back in the water immediately? You had to wait. You had to wait, what, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour? But you couldn't get in the water after eating. Did your parents tell you that? Why? Why, why did they say that? What was the point of that? I think it had something to do, they said, with cramping. I think the belief was that as you ate, all the blood in your body would rush to your stomach to help you digest your food, depriving your extremities of much needed blood. Your, your arms and legs would cramp and you would flail around in the water and you might possibly drown. Your oxygen deprived limbs would fail you. Uh, but the truth is we have enough blood in our bodies for all of our body parts to keep them functioning even after eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And uh, in, in all the history, of newspapers and medical record keeping, there are zero reports of a child who ate a bologna sandwich at the beach and then got into the water and cramped up so severely that he had to be rescued by a lifeguard or uh, some tragedy happened. So just think of how many precious minutes of your childhood were wasted, were absolutely ruined by bad information. Now, I assume that the real reason was mom and dad just wanted a break, <laughs> that, that you eat, sit down, be quiet, sit still. We need a break before we get back in the water. But while we're on the subject, you know that carrots don't improve your eyesight? Uh, cracking your knuckles doesn't cause arthritis. Alcohol does not kill brain cells. Coffee does not stunt your growth. Sugar does not make you hyper. Going outside with wet hair does not make you sick. And toads don't give you warts. And you can follow up on all those, on any of those that interest you. But all of those are false. Every one of them is false. And yet, our behavior is influenced. Our decisions are made to do this, not that, based on these superstitions, based on these urban legends, this misinformation that has no basis in reality, these assertions that have never been proven, but everyone just accepts. It's just part of your mental furniture. You see a child about to pick up a toad and you say, don't do that, you'll get a wart. Immediately, that is our response. It becomes part of us. Evangelical Christianity is not immune to this. We could name quite a number of misquotes of the Bible and theological errors that just get passed around and things that are accepted without challenge. But one of the most egregious examples, one of the most egregious expressions of extra-biblical misinformation is the commonly held belief that we are right now living 
in the very last days of planet Earth, and that any moment there could be a rapture of the bedraggled, defeated, uh, uh, culturally impotent righteous, and that the world that remains is going to be consumed by chaos and destruction and fire, while the saved will exist for eternity in a disembodied state in heaven. Uh, the origin of this set of beliefs is well documented. It goes back to the Plymouth Brethren in the 1800s. It was codified by the Schofield Study Bible in 1909. It was popularized in the 1970s by Hal Lindsey and his book, The Late Great Planet Earth. It was dramatized in the 1990s by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins in the Left Behind books and Left Behind movies. And it's been believed and accepted as core Christian doctrine by millions. It's just assumed. Of course, this is the roadmap to our future. Belief, then, in the, in the imminent destruction of creation, together with the expectation of the defeat of the church in history, these, these bad assumptions have worked together to produce an impotent church, a retreatist anxious church that has no optimism regarding the success of the gospel, very little trust in the powerful, effective influence of the word of God over the nations. This hopeless view of the future has stultified the church in the West for more than a century. And so it just, it just happens then because of this, we don't think and we don't plan in terms of multi-generational faithfulness, multi-generational influence and dominion. We don't think in covenantal terms about, about converting entire families and converting entire nations to the Lord Jesus. Simply stated, because we believe the end of all things, the destructive end of all things is so near that therefore the world is not savable or even worth saving. As well-known Baptist uh, radio preacher Adrian Rogers once said, any attempt by the church to influence the culture is like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. And that pretty much sums it up. It's all, it's all going to hell. What's the point? And I've shared many stories, and I, I have to resist uh, getting overly anecdotal. I'll, I'll share maybe one or two stories today. But in all my years in Baptist fundamentalism, I had a front row seat to decision after decision, both on a personal level and on an uh, on an institutional level, decisions that were made in light of the belief that our future is hopeless and that it could all end at any minute. Now, I, I've told you before about one church I was in many, many years ago where uh, all the young couples who got married, and this happened over and over and over, young couples would get married and immediately undergo surgical sterilization so that they wouldn't have children, so that they wouldn't bring children into the great tribulation. And it was based on a misreading of this chapter that's right in front of us today, Matthew chapter 24. They read Jesus's words, woe to those who are pregnant and to, to those who are nursing babies in those days. And they said, well, I don't want that to be us. So we're just not going to have children. Now, this was over 30 years ago. And so I wonder, are they still happy about their decision today? I hope, I hope that they've... Um, repented and maybe have um, adopted or, or done something else. But bad information leads inexorably to reckless, foolish behavior. 
And so this frantic, doom-filled eschatology, this this doom-filled view of the end of the world is built on a misunderstanding of several texts of Scripture. But in particular, um, one place that... um, that they, they camp on, and one place that a lot of um, misunderstandings come from is a misreading of Matthew chapter 24. Jesus' words that are in front of us right now, Jesus sitting on the Mount of Olives, teaching his disciples. And if, if you flip open your Bible to Matthew 24, and you just begin reading Matthew 24 in a vacuum, if you ignore the references that Jesus makes about how these words are for that generation, and the things he says will happen to that generation. If you ignore the context of everything else Jesus does in Matthew and everything else that's going on in the New Testament, uh, then maybe, maybe it's easy to see how you could come away with some of these ideas. But that's not what we're doing. We're not just flipping the Bible open to Matthew 24. We have been studying this gospel together verse by verse by verse for a very long time, and we've started at the very beginning. And so this discourse of Jesus in Matthew 24 doesn't come in isolation from the rest of his teaching or the rest of what's been going on in the gospel. But this teaching here is deeply integrated. The things that he speaks of here are the response of God toward the rebellion of that generation that Jesus is speaking to. That generation's rejection of the Son of God that generation's rejection of the offer of salvation in their Messiah. The father is going to vindicate his son against the false accusations of that generation, which led to his betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion. It's this generation that Jesus is addressing primarily. These events are not a timeline of our future and cannot be read that way faithfully or consistently. I often say this, you've probably heard me say it before, but I'm gonna point it out again, that whatever construct you wanna draw out of the events of this chapter, it all has to be wrapped up within the lifetimes of the people standing there. Because Jesus says in verse 34, assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. So whatever timeline you want to draw, whatever chart, whatever map you want to to put together for these events, it all has to wrap up in the space of that generation. And I'm confident that it did. I'm confident that all of this did take place to that generation, just as Jesus said. But because of the errors that we've all grown up with, and I'm including myself in this, that because of these errors, we have to reorient as we go. So we're gonna take our time to work through Matthew 24. I said my goal is to get to Matthew 27 by Good Friday, Matthew 28 and the resurrection by Easter. And so I kind of sped through Matthew 23 last time we were together so I could slow down, so we could hit the brakes for Matthew 24. And we're just gonna take a little piece at a time and we're gonna do it uh, um, verse by verse. Remember where we are in Matthew's gospel. We're in the final days leading up to the crucifixion. We're in these last days of Jesus's ministry before the crucifixion. He has entered the city of Jerusalem. He was welcomed by people waving palm branches, singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He went into the temple to declare his father's disapproval of the activity there. He interrupted the business of the temple and then he left the city. He came back a couple of days later, sat down in the courtyard and taught 
while wave after wave of Jewish leaders, sects, various groups came to him and put questions to him. Various critics asked gotcha questions. They were trying to trip him up. They were trying to ask him questions in order to bait him into incriminating himself. Um, they didn't come to learn, they came to posture, to score points with the multitudes, and if possible, to eliminate Jesus, to spark something that would eliminate Jesus. Well, Jesus answered all their questions, and we've studied this together. He exposes them as unfaithful stewards of God's heritage, of God's vineyard, and he tells them, they, those men, the ones he's talking to, he's saying, you are going to be removed and you are gonna be replaced. His parables speak of, if we're listening and we're paying attention to what he's talking about, he's talking about burning cities, destruction of the wicked, reprobates being kicked out, violent men being judged. You listen to these parables and you hear Jesus telling those people right there, on that day, standing in that courtyard, that the outpouring of God's wrath is imminent for them. And then after Jesus is finished answering their questions, he turns to his disciples in Matthew 23, and he pronounces eight woes, eight pronouncements of judgment against the scribes and Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them a brood of vipers. He says, you're murderers of the prophets. And he says, on you, on you will come God's judgment for all these things. And he builds to that crescendo in, uh, in, at the end of chapter 23. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus stands in that temple complex and he talks about a desolate house, an empty house, a ruined house. It's obvious he's talking about the coming, the impending destruction of this edifice. And he says, I'm not coming back here in a friendly way until you chief priests and Pharisees join your voices to the multitudes who said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, they, they don't say that. They say, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. And it's on that generation that these judgments are gonna fall. So immediately after Jesus says this, after these declarations of judgment, after he weeps over the plight of Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus leaves the temple and his disciples walk him around outside the campus of the temple, the temple grounds. And that's where we pick up in chapter 24. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Now they're not pointing out the buildings as if he's a tourist and this is the first time he's ever seen these things. Jesus grew up around, Jesus came and visited the city of Jerusalem as a child. Jesus is well familiar with everything. What they're doing is they're calling his attention to all of this and say, Jesus, are you serious? Look at how, how formidable this is. Look how glorious this is. Look, how, look at the splendor. How can you condemn such glorious structures that are dedicated to the worship of our Father in heaven? And then Jesus responds very forcefully, very clearly. He says, it's all coming down. In verse two, Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. When Jesus says, do you not see all these things? He's not simply saying, do you see it with your eyes? He's saying, he's speaking about their understanding. 
He says, do you understand? Do you see? Do you grasp this? That this building has outlived its usefulness. It's outlived its usefulness now because I have come. I am the new temple. I am the new high priest. I am the new, the final sacrifice. And so now that I have come, this building has outlived its usefulness. But that's not it. That's not all. This present arrangement, the way things are going with this building now, it's a false temple. This is not, this is not a place of genuine worship. This is a false temple. And so the way that Jesus describes the dismantling of this building, he says, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another. For students of God's law, that would trigger something in their minds. They would think, oh, yeah. There are other times where houses are dismantled stone by stone. Back in Leviticus 14, there's a description of a kind of leprous plague that could get into your garments or it could get into the walls of a house. And uh, if uh, it was kind of a, uh, it's described as a visible green or red corruption. And if a homeowner feared that this plague had gotten into the walls of his house, he calls for a priest to come inspect it, come ex examine it. And if the priest says, yes, that is the leprous plague, then the house must be shut up for seven days. No one goes in or goes out. Um, you, you stay out of the house. And then uh, seven days later, the priest comes back and he inspects it again. And if the plague has spread, if the corruption has spread, then the directive is the house must be taken apart stone by stone. Not one stone is to be left upon another. And the stones are to be thrown out of the city. And new stones are to be brought together to build a new house. Well, that is a whole, that, that is a description of what's going on in the New Testament, right? One house is being dismantled while new living stones are being built up into a, a new house. But that's what Leviticus uh, 14 is all about. And so it's apparent here that the temple is a leprous house. Jesus came and inspected it in the beginning of his ministry. John tells us in his gospel that Jesus came very early to the temple, right at the beginning of his work. And now the other gospel writers tell us he comes at the end of his ministry and he finds out between these two inspections, he finds out the corruption has spread. There's another little reference in Ezekiel 8, um, something else to remember. In Ezekiel 8, the prophet there has a vision of um, uh, the Lord telling him, go tear a hole in the wall of the temple. And Ezekiel, in this vision, he goes, breaks open, he looks into the walls of the temple, and he finds in the walls abominations. He finds these grotesque, disgusting idols, and not only that, but the elders of Israel are bowing down to them. The corruption is in the walls of the temple. Again, that's Leviticus 14 language. The, the, the corruption has, has gotten into the walls. And so in Ezekiel's day, again, the whole thing has to come down. And it, and it did. So what Jesus speaks of here, this dismantling of the stones of the temple, this is not the first time in history that God has taken apart his own, his own house. This is not the first time that God has removed his blessing from his house and departed and separated himself way back in the time of Eli the priest. Remember when, Sol um, when um, Samuel was just a boy, Samuel was a boy, Eli's sons were committing terrible abuses at the temple, and the wickedness and the rebellion of the people was obnoxious, and God separates, he tears apart the tabernacle, the, 
the uh, Ark of the Covenant gets captured by the Philistines and it never comes back. The, the tabernacle is never put back together again. The Ark is in one place, the Ark of the Covenant, I'm sorry, the, uh, yeah, the altar is in one place and the Ark of the Covenant is in another place. The glory has departed because of the wickedness of that house. Centuries later, uh, Solomon's temple was destroyed by Babylon. Ezekiel saw the presence of Yahweh, Yahweh's chariot, go up and away from Jerusalem, and that house was left desolate. So this is not the first time that something like this has happened. So as we read these following warnings about the events that Jesus is detailing, keep this in view. What is the context? What is being said? What is Jesus saying is going to happen? And what are the disciples asking about in response? We are principally reading about an imminent judgment against that generation, against that house that has to be dismantled. We are, when all of this is done, that leprous house is going to be destroyed. Verse 3, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Jesus sits with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, which gave them this amazing panorama, gave them this wonderful vista of the city of Jerusalem. And from the Mount of Olives, I've read, you can look right down through the gate of the city, right down into the temple courtyard. So Jesus sits here with his disciples, surveying the entire city and the prominent temple sitting right there. And the question of the disciples is, okay, Lord, when is this happening? Jesus said the temple's gonna be dismantled. When? When is the end of this phase of history? When is the end of this age, the age of the physical temple, the sacrifices, the cleansings, this ordering of the world? Lord, when are you going to arrive to effect this change? And they, they ask, what is the sign of your coming? Now, we read that. We read that question. What is the sign of your coming? And our minds immediately run to like a, a Kirk Cameron movie, right? Or, um, or uh, you know, did anybody see a, a Thief in the Night that in like the late 70s or the 80s, that uh, church basement movie about the end of the world? Um, there was one, and you can probably find it on YouTube somewhere. That's where our minds go. When they ask the question, we think that's what they're asking about. Or we think they're asking about Christ coming at the, at the final judgment, at the end of history. But let's, let's stay grounded in this conversation. What are they talking about? What is the conversation? When they say, what will be the sign of your coming, the uh, Greek word translated coming is a word you may have come across before. It's parousia. And by the way, when I talk about, hey, here's a word that helps shed light on what is going on here. This is stuff you can look up for yourself. I'm not, I'm not doing, uh, you know, I'm not being some guru up here telling you how to read this. Look this up, your, look at what parousia means uh, for yourself. And, and the word that they use and what they're asking about, parousia means presence as opposed to apousia, which means absence. And so this word parousia is commonly used for the coming of kings, the coming of rulers to a city, a king who appears after a time of being absent. The king comes and makes his presence known to inspect, to judge how things are going, render judgments, to distribute gifts, and to set things in order. 
And so the question of the disciples sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking down into the city, looking down into the temple, Lord, when are you coming as king to sort all of this out? When are you coming to fix this problem that we're looking at down there? Now, these men have been with Jesus both through the triumphal entry, which was pretty positive, that's pretty encouraging, but then they get into the temple and it's pretty chilling. There's a cold response, a cold reception that they got in the temple. And so when they were going into the city, they might've held out hope that Jesus was gonna be coronated. He's gonna be seated on the throne of David when they get into the city, but they get into the temple and they see all of this resistance and confusion and hypocrisy. And now they're putting it together. No, all of that is really gonna have to be dismantled. All of that is gonna have to be torn down. The religious and political structures of Jerusalem are gonna have to be torn down stick by stick, stone by stone, in order for uh, Jesus to uh, be established as king. And so they're putting this together. So Lord, when is this happening? When are you gonna come sort everything out? And, and we understand this is gonna mean the destruction of the temple, the total reorganization of everything. The entire present arrangement of Israel is gonna to have to end. So Jesus, when are you gonna be realized as king? When are you appearing in authority and judgment? Now, if we keep reading, and we're not gonna get this far today, but if we keep reading, the answer is he is going to be vindicated as king. He's going to be proven to be the son of God and his word is true in this generation. How many times in Matthew's gospel has Jesus addressed this generation, this generation that rejected the ministry of John the Baptist, this generation who are like children sitting in the marketplaces complaining that Jesus isn't dancing to their tune, whether happy or sad, this evil and adulterous generation that seeks a sign. He calls them in another place, this unbelieving and perverted generation. Uh, Jesus says to those people living then, those people, he says, it's gonna be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than it will be for you, for you. Jesus told those chief priests just before this, he said uh, that the, the kingdom will be taken from them and given to another nation. There is an immediacy to all of this. That there is an urgency to what Jesus is saying here. It's, he's not stretching things out for thousands of years for centuries ahead. This is near to, to uh, Jesus's uh, uh, saying that they are going to happen. Now, eventually he's gonna answer their question about the timing of these things. They're questioning the timing and he's gonna answer them. But first, he describes several things that are not signs of his parousia, but he calls these are the beginning of sorrows. The next few decades for them are gonna be turbulent and there are gonna be many hardships, and there'll be many threats, but he exhorts his disciples, be patient, stay calm, because when things start to fall apart, you're going to be tempted to overreact, and you're gonna think, oh, this is it, oh, this is over, oh, it's the end of the world, but Jesus says it is not. And this is important for us to hear, this is so relevant to us, because there are always reactionary people in every century who look at blips of bad news, the ebbs and flows of society, and think, oh, this is it. This is the end of everything. This is, it's over. Uh, the end is near. The, the Dow Jones goes down a few points. You think, oh, no, that means the sky is falling. A Democrat is elected somewhere. That's it. We're cooked. That, we're, stick a fork in us. We're done. Average global temperatures are up one-third of one degree. This is the end of life on planet Earth. Don't listen 
Don't listen to frantic doomers and chicken littles. They are not reliable prophets. Don't allow your mood to go up and down depending on what you read on the internet. Don't be a doomer and don't be gullible. Don't, don't believe everything. Don't allow yourself to be panicked and don't create, don't instigate panic for others. Don't spread panic. As Paul tells the Thessalonian church, he says, don't be easily shaken. Don't be, don't be easily alarmed. Because in turbulent times, um, like we're living in, it's similar to what we're dealing with, in turbulent times, there's a kind of naive credulity that takes over, and it seems even among ordinary, thoughtful, conservative Christians, this can still happen, where we run, we flee to every conspiracy theory, Every urban legend, we hop on every fad, every food fad, every health fad, every exercise fad. There's always also a threat. There's always something to be anxious about. There's always some disaster right over the next hill. And, and you want to know about it for, before everybody else because you want to tell everybody before anybody else finds out. And you want to be ready for it like no one else. But the problem is, is that the fruit of all of this fomenting anxiety and panic and fervor. The fruit of this is very little quiet, very little peace, very little confidence, very little trust in our Heavenly Father. We can very quickly produce more worry and more despair than any unbeliever. We can do this. We can gin it up. And Jesus warns his disciples about this. So he says over the next few verses, he says, you don't do this. Don't, don't do this. Uh, I'm going to pick up in verse 4. <clears throat> and Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will be, betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because the lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So he tells them, and these next few decades, between this day, where he's saying this, the next few decades between this day and the parousia, when he comes in judgment, as he promised he will, these days will be marked by four categories of challenges. There will be false teachers, there will be calamities, and by calamities, wars, famines, earthquakes, plagues. So false teachers, calamities, persecution, and apostasy. They'll be falling away and denying the faith. Let's take just a moment on each one of these, very, very briskly. The first thing he warns about is false teacher, and he, and he does this three times in this text. False prophets and false messiahs will opportunistically claim to be there teaching in Jesus' name, or some will claim to even be Jesus himself. Jesus says, I'm shortly going to manifest my power and my rule, and there are going to be some who say he has already come. He is here bodily. He's already on the scene. Now, 
eventually, when Jesus does come in judgment to pull the temple down stone by stone, it was not in physical bodily appearance. They did not see him walking around. His parousia, his appearance, was a manifestation of his heavenly rule, but it came in the form of the Roman army. That's what it looked like. And, and by the way, this is not some novel reading that, that, that's something we're imposing on the text. When you read all of the prophets, in the prophets of the Old Testament, talking about the day of the Lord, and they warn, Yahweh is going to come and judge his people. He is going to draw near, but in not one of those judgments did Yahweh come physically, bodily. The appearance of Yahweh, when, when he came in judgment, it was in the form of locust plagues, or earthquakes, or famine, or in the Assyrian army, or in the Babylonian army, or in captivity. Um, so Jesus says, watch, watch and pay attention. False prophets are going to come and they're going to claim to be me and they're going to claim that, um, some of them are going to claim that we found him, come out to the desert where he is or, or come with us. He's in the inner rooms of the temple and Jesus says, don't believe it. Don't believe a word of it. You don't have to go with them. I'm telling you right now, it's not me. I'm, why could he say right now, it, that's not going to be me. It's never going to be me. It's because his coming, his return was not going to look like that. His return is going to be very, very different from that. But these false teachers are going to rise and Jesus says, don't go after them. He also says this time would be full of calamities. He said it'd be full of wars and famines and diseases and earthquakes. Again, remember, these are not things that he's listing which are going to uh, um, be indicators of the end of the world. He says, these things are going to take place, but don't look at any one of them and think, oh, this is the end. Uh, again, many years ago, way back uh, in the day when uh, I was a Baptist pastor, we had a prophecy conference. We invited this seismologist who was a prophecy expert um, who studied earthquakes, and he put all this earthquake data up on the uh, overhead projector, and he said all these increasing earthquakes are obvious signs that the end of the world is near. The, the rapture and the destruction of the world is near. Um, well, number one, Jesus is saying explicitly, these are not signs of, of the end. Even in a wrong reading of this, you can still see Jesus is saying, this is not the end. And by the way, we find more earthquakes and we measure more earthquakes because we have more uh, machinery and, and ability to, to measure them in a way that we never have before. Earthquakes have always happened. There have always been earthquakes. There have always been wars and rumors of wars. There will always be wars until the day when the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea, when men beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, when nation shall not lift up sword against nation nor study war anymore. That day is coming, and I can't wait. I cannot wait for that day, and I fear and, um, it's not going to be in our lifetime. We are still immature. We, are still, we still have a lot of growing up to do as, as a people. There is still a lust for war that's perpetuated by our desire for vengeance. It's driven by our enthusiasm to overthrow evil regimes. And we always hope that this war, this war will be the war to end all wars. This war will be the one that changes the world and brings peace. And Jesus is warning his people, don't get wrapped up in that. Don't think that this conflict, this war, this rumor of war is going to be what brings about uh, uh, my, my judgment and justice. Don't go with the multitude. Some wars are just, some wars are necessary, 
How many of our nation's wars have been just wars? How many wars in our lifetime have been biblically justifiable? Um, how many wars, though, have Christians gotten stirred up about and excited about and go along with the mob? Wars turn loose all kinds of fearful forces in society, and believers must resist this, and Jesus warns his people to cool it. Additionally, fears over famine and disease and natural disasters, all these fears destabilize society, and tyrants use these opportunities to increase authority and increase control, and Jesus is warning his men, don't get swept up in the panic and the chaos of the world. Third thing, he says persecution is going to increase. These warnings are directed to them. On that day, he says to Peter and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Nathaniel and Thomas, he says to them, he looks them in the eye and he says, they will deliver you up to tribulation and they will kill you and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Again, this is not a vague reference to some crisis hundreds of years away this is the crisis described in the book of Acts. This is the crisis that the early church went through. After the crucifixion, after the resurrection of Jesus, attacks, from the church, uh, attacks against the church increase. They come from the synagogue. They come from the temple authorities. You read the book of Acts, and there are, are men who pursue Paul from city to city, falsely accusing him in front of Gentile magistrates, this persecution was real. They instigated hate and suspicion against the church, and that led to turmoil inside the church, which produced uh, the fourth thing, which was apostasy. This next uh, century would be marked by apostasy, falling away. He says, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Um, Paul, Paul's letters to Timothy describe men who have fallen away. Um, the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation all warn of this danger of, 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 of those who are falling away. Jude, the little book of Jude, warns about men entering the church and leading people astray. This was a major problem in the first century of the church. And you, you might think, well, the early church was more pure or, or more immune to this sort of thing. It wasn't. And if it was a problem for them, then what about us? And of course, we, we, we've seen this in our day, right? People join themselves to the church. Maybe they're driven by unstable situations. They're driven by uncertain times. And they come into covenant with the church, and then they grow complacent. And they, uh, they start to not take things seriously. Jesus says, lawlessness abounds. Uh, you, you start taking things for granted. You don't take God's word seriously. You don't, think, you, you don't think you have to be holy. You don't think you have to be righteous. You don't have to obey a certain way. You, you think it's all just a big joke. Uh, it's all surface level. And you develop this form of religion that has no substance. And there's no salvation in this empty, nominal religion. There's no deliverance. When Jesus comes in judgment, he's coming for the hypocrites. He just spent a whole chapter calling out the hypocrites. And so he says in verse 13, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. The perseverance of the saints is not passive. It's not just something that happens. It's the acting out of a real living faith by being faithful, by obeying, by taking hold of the promises. So Jesus lists all these afflictions as the beginning of sorrows. And these things, historically, they did happen throughout that, uh, those next few decades. Again, Jesus says these are not 
the signs of the end. Don't take any one of these as an indicator that judgment is about to happen. And then at the very end of the little section we're reading today, he does give one sign. He gives one sign that the end of the old creation is near. He says in verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. The word world that he uses is not cosmos. It's not all of creation. It's not Gaia. It's not planet Earth. He says the gospel will be preached to the whole oikumene. And that's a word commonly used of the empire, of the civilized world. He says the gospel is going to pre be preached throughout the civilized world. It's the same word that uh, Caesar Augustus uses in Luke's gospel when he taxed the whole world. He taxed the whole oikumene. Caesar Augustus didn't tax India. He didn't tax whoever was living in South America at the time, but he taxed the whole civilized world, the whole Roman Empire. And that's exactly what happens. Jesus says, when the gospel is preached throughout the civilized world, then the end will come. That's, uh, the gospel goes out to, um, to Asia Minor. It goes out to Greece. It goes to Rome. It goes to Ethiopia. Uh, it, it, possible it went to Spain with Paul. And then at the end of about 40 years, then came the end, the destruction of the temple. So we're going to stop there. We're going to pick up next week. But as we close, understand that putting all of this into a first century context, reading this in the near context of what is happening then does not remove its relevance or its importance or instruction for us. If I tell you Jonah's warnings were for Nineveh and Isaiah is principally dealing with the threat of the Assyrian army and Jeremiah is dealing with the Babylonian threat, if I tell you that, your response is not, oh, well, I guess, I guess Jonah's irrelevant. I guess we can't read Isaiah now. Thanks, you just ruined Jeremiah for me because you told me it was all about Babylon. Uh, no, I'm, that, that doesn't ruin it for us, right? Um, no, quite the contrary. We learn that God always calls for repentance and obedience from his people through all stages of history and through all circumstances. And that any time God brings down a wicked society, whenever God has determined to dismantle a leprous house, we can expect the same kinds of things to happen. We can expect panic and anxiety and wars and rumors of wars, and we can expect famine and pestilence and natural disasters, and we can also expect that there will be the temptation to wrongly interpret all of these things and to panic when there's no reason for panic. Uh, that, that all kinds of things look like the end, but they're not the end. You go through experiences that feel like death, but they aren't death. We get wrapped up in the current thing, whatever the current thing is, and we think this is the problem. This present calamity is the threat. This is the deal that we have to get focused on. This is end of life as we know it, but it isn't. And the reality is the greater danger is false teachers. The greater danger is apostasy. Wars and earthquakes and diseases can end our physical lives, but false teaching leads men to hell. If only we would redirect our anxieties about politics and wicked people showing out and doing wicked things, refocus away from every urban legend and conspiracy theory and doom of the day, and refocus toward the reformation of the church and the correction and the encouragement of the church, then not only 
would we be a much more stable church, but we would have a church that would stand as a bulwark against these waves of social instability as old worlds die and new worlds are born, which is always happening. We can ride out the birth pangs of a new world being born because we serve the author of history, because we preach an effective gospel. The gospel's influence is sure. It will transform lives and hearts and nations and families. And so we don't ever fear when one world dies and a new one is born because the new world that God brings forth is always better. As people in in union with Christ, resurrection is always on the other side of death. And we are members of his body. We are members of the church that will be triumphant in history. So we abide, so we endure, and we do so not nervously, not fretfully, not anxiously. We do so joyfully and confidently in God's Holy Spirit as he's directing all things. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we praise you for your word and we praise you for the words of our Savior. We ask you to strengthen us in them, to give us great confidence and to cause us to rest and to rejoice and to celebrate and to do all these good things because we're your people, Father. So we pray that you would stabilize us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.